Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You can be seated. <laughs> Should ask for a spot on that. Hey, would you guys pray with me? Um, Father, we are grateful uh, just for the opportunity to, to, to gather and worship you in this place. Um, as Oscar mentioned just uh, a moment ago, um, we are especially grateful for just the privilege and blessing that we have to worship you freely. And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world particularly in Afghanistan and in other places uh, where maybe that privilege or freedom uh, is, is not enjoyed. And we know, Lord, that you see them. You see what we've seen. You, you see the churches that have had to go into hiding. You've seen those images of um, just bodies falling down, of children being hoisted over um, wired uh, fences. And um, we know, God, that you're not okay with that. And so we pray, God, we plead with you that, that justice would happen, that those who seek refuge would find the refuge that they need, that those who want to worship you would um, have that freedom just given and protected to them. And we know, Lord, especially that you are a God who is deeply acquainted with suffering and grief. You watched your son die on the cross in our place. And so we thank you for the good news that Jesus brings. And as this theme in Revelation has been coming up again and again, we just long, Jesus, for you to come back. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are, as Oscar mentioned, uh, continuing our series through the book of uh, Revelation. We're finding ourselves uh, still in this portion of scripture that is 
seven letters to different churches uh, in Revelation chapters two through three. And so far, we've seen uh, that Jesus is addressing these churches. He first addressed this church in Ephesus, which uh, at first glance uh, looks like a faithful church, right? An encouraging church. They're defending the truth. They're doing good work. But he says, you've lost your first love. And so he challenges them on that. And then last week, as Oscar spoke about the church in Smyrna, a church that was enduring suffering, but was given the encouragement to keep persevering. And what we're seeing is that Jesus, as he addresses these churches, we kind of get the sense that he wants these churches to be renewed. He wants them to be refreshed. He wants these churches to find real wholeness and health in this fractured world that we live in. Revelation, as we mentioned in the first couple sermons of this series, is truly apocalyptic. And that word apocalypse doesn't mean necessarily like end of the world Armageddon like we think it does. Apocalypse in its truest form, in the truest sense of the word, it means uh, unveiling and opening up and unboxing and unveiling. And so to say that Revelation is apocalyptic is to say that it unveils and reveals what's really going on. Revelation exposes to us how things truly are. More than an expose about future events, Revelation should teach us, should unveil to us how we can find hope presently in the victory of Christ and his church. This last week, uh, my family, we went on vacation to Escondido, and we, one of the days we took our kids to, to SeaWorld. And uh, if you know our, our, our two-year-old Judson, uh, he, uh, you know, he was, just because of how little he is, we pushed him around in the stroller the whole time, and at one point, uh, he just starts kicking, like getting restless, like, get me out of here. And so uh, I took him out uh, to give him a little break from the stroller. I put him up on my shoulders, and, and as soon as he goes up there, I could hear him go, whoa. And he starts pointing out to the horizon. He goes, I like that one. I like that one. And when he says, I like that one, he's like pointing to rides, right? Like, like I want to go on that. I want to see that. Like, I like that thing. What happens is that by going up on my shoulders, he was given this greater perspective of what was really going on around him. In the stroller, he just wanted to kick and, and get free. He was feeling all restless, but with this new perspective, there was an, an unveiling of sorts of what's really going on, an exposing of how things truly were. And in the same way, Revelation is giving us a greater perspective. And in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is sort of pulling the curtain back on seven particular churches to help lift their gaze above their circumstances to see what's really going on, how Christ is really at work, to see how they really have been faithful or really have been unfaithful. And so to Smyrna, like, yes, they're a small church, they're, they're poor, they're uh, struggling, 
But Jesus reveals to them like, hey, although you're feeling poor and weak, remember your riches that are yours in Christ. And to Ephesus, you think they're doing great and well and good uh, because, you know, they've got all this cool stuff going on, but then Jesus sort of pulls back the curtain. He unveils that. He says, hey, you guys have walked away from your first love. And now we look at the next letter. In Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12, to the church at Pergamum. Now, it's helpful to know a little bit of history about Pergamum before we kind of dive into the text. But uh, so at, at, at the time that Revelation was written, Pergamum had roughly, they say, about like 100,000 people in this city. And it was an influential city with this great location. And so it became sort of this hot destination spot in the region. It had fortified walls all around it. It sat at this high point on the side of a mountain. And so if you could picture it, it's kind of like Helm's Deep at Lord of the Rings, right? Like this, this fortress built into the side of the mountain. And it's near the peak. And so it's sort of overlooking down into the valley. And so because of their vantage point, they could see attackers coming from miles away. And so that, all, all this to say that Pergamum was a safe place. It was a secure place. It was so secure that Alexander the Great once stored like a good chunk of his treasure there at Pergamum, and it was for that reason that the wealthy Greeks in the region, they all lived in the core of this city. And because all the wealthy Greeks lived in the core of Pergamum, what ended up happening is they erected these temples to their gods. And so that you had the temples to Zeus and Athena and all these other Greek gods and goddesses. There was this big icon in the middle of uh, the city uh, for the emperor because you were to worship him as God. There's a temple, this huge temple to, to, to Dionysus, the goddess of wine. And because of that, the culture was such that people came to Pergamum to get drunk, to party, to sleep with prostitutes. It was like this bougie, ancient version of Las Vegas. And so what does Jesus have to say to a church in this city? He says to them, uh, again, he's speaking to John when he says this. In verse 12, he says, to the angel or the messenger at the church of Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... Now, again, what's happening is that Jesus is appearing to the Apostle John. And he appears to the Apostle John in this vision at the beginning of Revelation. And John sees Jesus kind of walking amongst the churches, right? Uh, and and he, Jesus speaks to John and he says, hey, write these things down. I want you to write down these words that I want you to have delivered to these different churches. And it gets worth noting that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in these churches. He introduces himself here as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. In other words, the one who knows everything there is to know about these churches is the one who also has the power to divide what is true and what is false. That's what a two-edged sword does. 
He has the power to divide what is good from what is evil, to divide what lasts from what will eventually wither and die. And in a moment here, after introducing himself as the one who wields this two-edged sword, he's, he's going to shoot straight with them. He's going to get real with them about some things that he's observed in their church. And to Pergamum, we, we, we see a similar outline to what we saw in the first letter to church at Ephesus. And so first we see he addresses Pergamum's past faithfulness. Pergamum's past faithfulness. Look at verse 13, where Jesus says, look, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And we'll get to what that means in a moment. But Jesus says, yet you hold fast my name. He's, he's commending them. He's encouraging them here. He says, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So what's going on here? In verse 13, Jesus is drawing attention to this church's faithfulness in, in the face of adversity. Kind of like what? what we talked about last week, right? Jesus is drawing attention to this church and how they were faithful in the face of adversity, how they sort of stood their spiritual ground under some pressures that they were feeling from, from the outside coming in. And those pressures came for a few different reasons. Like one, the city was polytheistic, which meant that they worshiped many different gods with all these different temples of worship, like we mentioned. It was also pluralistic, which means they had a lot of different beliefs going on. And because many of the cultural elites lived there in Pergamum, it was a great place for ideas and philosophies to be shared. They actually had this auditorium where like up to 4,000 people could come in, travel into Pergamum to hear lectures uh, given out. Like it's sort of like the ancient Greek version of TED Talks, right? Whatever the Greek version of TED Talks would be. Like to, no, I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> I was going to say no. No, forget it. It's bad. <laughs> um, Tzatziki talks. So <laughs> when, when Christians come along now into Pergamum and start planting churches, sharing their faith, they, and, and they say, like, look, no, there's not many gods. There's one God, and his name is Jesus. Like, they're going to get significant pushback. And also, like I mentioned, the emperor at the time, Domitian, he declared himself God, and he demanded worship from everyone in the empire. He gave himself titles like Lord, God, Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer. I mean, he was like the ultimate toxic version of like Dwight in the office, um, second office reference of, of the afternoon. You know, remember, if you're a fan of the office, you remember when Dwight was given the title of assistant to the manager, and he, 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 re, he reworks it around to be like, no, I'm the assistant manager, uh, and then he starts to like create his own description of like what that means, right? Like this is like the ultimate toxic version of that. He, he's creating his own titles. He's telling everybody what that means. He says, hey, you got to give everything to me. You got to give me money. You got to give me your devotion. You got to give me worship. The emperor Domitian He didn't care which group of gods people worshipped as long as you added him to the list. 
And so again, when the Christians come in and they say, no, Lord, God, Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, no, that's Jesus. That's Jesus, and that's Jesus alone that put them, that put the Christians at odds with the powerful at Pergamum. The only exception to that emperor's rule uh, where people had to worship him or else uh, be fined, jailed, hurt, or killed, the only exception to the emperor's rule were the Jews in the the area, and that's because of this old, like, generations-long tradition of allowing Jews to worship their God. But when Christians separated from the Jews to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and Savior, there suddenly was widespread persecution of Christians from both Jews and Greeks coming against them, especially here at Pergamum. Now, I want you to look at how verse 13 um, references uh, one of the, the faithful men at Pergamum. He says, you did not deny my faith. He's talking to the whole church here. As verse 13 continues, he says, you, Pergamum, you church at Pergamum, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So apparently, this this persecution that they experience even led at times to death, led to martyrdom of some kind including this guy here named by Jesus, Antipas, who uh, scholars say was likely a leader in the church. History tells us that Antipas offered his own life to spare the lives of other Christians that were otherwise going to be executed. And the persecutors, they accepted his offer And the way that they martyred him, the way that they killed Antipas for his faith is they slow roasted him in a brass container over a fire. That's how he died. And this church, they knew that guy. They knew Antipas. He was a member of this church. He was a leader among them. There were people in this church who sat at the dinner table with him. People in this church who were likely counseled by him, discipled by him, maybe baptized by him. And so this church knew quite well that it was hard and costly and challenging to follow Jesus. Yet Jesus here, he applauds them. He says, like, even while you guys were going through that, you were faithful. You were faithful. Man, there's, I mentioned this uh, early on in our Revelation series. Um, but you guys got to get familiar with um, the ministry voice of the martyrs. They track, uh, they track, uh, Christian groups uh, that are being persecuted, uh, where people are being martyred. Um, obviously, like they've got a, a lot of work and information on what's going on in Afghanistan right now, what's been going on in China uh, for a while, and in Africa and other parts of, of the world. 
And man, like, how encouraging would it be to hear the words from Jesus? Hey, look, I know what you're going through. I see it. I know it's hard. I know it's costly. I know it's challenging. But man, like, you're faithful. You've been faithful, and you are going to be rewarded for that ongoing faithfulness. Now, for Pergamum, this story of faithfulness was a story about their past. Jesus transitions now, and he addresses Pergamum's present compromise. That's point number two, Pergamum's present compromise. Now remember how Jesus addressed the first church uh, when he talked to the church at Ephesus at the beginning of chapter two. He says, you know, look, you guys were faithful in many areas, but you've wandered from this love that you once had. And Jesus told that church in Ephesus, he says, you know, you, you once had this deep love for me. I want you to remember that. Rehearse it. Remember that. Go back to it. And it's almost like he's doing the same thing here for Pergamum. Where he's saying, hey, remember your faithfulness that you guys had before in a previous generation. Remember your faithfulness. There was a depth to your faith that you had, but that's now lost. And he's reminding them of what was once in them, this capacity that they once had. I think that's significant because for us, Perhaps for you this afternoon, there might be something that you feel like you're lacking now in your walk with Jesus. Spiritual vitality, excitement, genuine love and passion for Jesus, affections for him, faithfulness in your conduct, with your habits, with the way that you repent from sin, Maybe there's something that you're lacking right now in your walk with Jesus where compromise has crept in over time. And if that's you, I, I think G, what Jesus wants to do with this text for you this afternoon is he wants you to remember this capacity that you once had. He wants you to remember this faithfulness that was once true of you and to find encouragement of that, in that. To trust that what he's calling us back to is somewhere you've been before, another, a place that you are acquainted with, and his spirit will provide for you once more the strength and the capacity to be there again. And I, notice, I want you to notice what he calls Pergamum. He says, again, the beginning of verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He calls Pergamum this place where Satan's throne is. Now, what is he doing there? When he says throne of Satan, that's not literal. Like Satan doesn't actually have this throne set up at Pergamum. Again, remember that what Revelation's purpose is, is to unveil and use imagery and symbolism and poetry, to use apocalyptic literature to and wordings to sort of peel back the layers and unveil to us what's really going on. And so Jesus says the throne of Satan is here. 
because he's pointing out that satanic powers are pushing back, attempting to push back the kingdom of God through the presence of idols, through the influence of Zeus and the emperor, the persecution going on. Jesus is unveiling to them the sobering reality that their diminishing faithfulness is due to more than just mere human failure. It's not that they haven't failed. They most certainly have, but it's not just mere, just mere human failure, but there are also spiritual forces at play that he wants them to be cognizant of, to just name it. To just, to just see that and acknowledge that so you know how to pray for that, so you know how to battle that. As Paul says, we don't, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. There were a lot of power structures in place because of the wealth and the politics and the emperor's influence uh, in Pergamum. A lot of power structures in place that left this wake of destruction behind them. Not just related to the worship of the emperor, but just with all the other corruption going on. Like, you had corrupt systems at play here that involved human trafficking, the murder of anybody who just didn't didn't agree or, or, or line up with the, the, uh, the worship of, of uh, many gods and of emperor and things like that. You had child sacrifice happening at some of these temples. And the Christians suffered because they wouldn't go along with that stuff. So by mentioning Satan's throne, Jesus is, again, pulling back the curtain to show the ugliness of demonic influences, the ugliness of systemic corruption, that there's more going on than what we see going on. Look, today, we got to recognize that when people suffer, that when nations are torn apart, that when justice is thwarted or turned on its head, that when brothers and sisters of Christ are fighting one another, there's more than mere human failure at play. There's spiritual forces at work. Behind all the controversies about COVID and how it's handled by different states and counties and churches, behind all our differences in politics, behind cancel culture, behind woke culture, behind Christian nationalism, behind prejudice, behind poverty, there are spiritual forces at work here. And Jesus then points to the compromise that's specifically going on due to their failure and due to the demonic influences at play. He says in verse 14, 14, he says, I have a few things against you. And so after commending them for their faithfulness, Jesus now begins to give them their correction. He starts to shoot straight here, and he tells us of the ways that they have dishonored the Lord, ways that they have compromised. Now, look, we need to know this because practically, many of us have experienced this. Practically, 
when we suffer, when we struggle, when life gets hard, when there's a lot of chaos going on, when following Jesus as Lord begins to cost us, maybe a relationship with a friend or family member or some begins to cost us some other type of like pain or discomfort, we think, we start to think, hey, maybe I can get a little pass on sin for just a little bit. I mean, going through a lot right now. There's a lot going on. Maybe get a little, get a pass on, on sin for a little bit. And Jesus says, look, I see what's going on. I know your hearts. I know you're capable of this. You've been there before. I get and understand that you've suffered and endured in faithfulness before. But that faithfulness doesn't mark you anymore. And your past faithfulness doesn't excuse sin and rebellion in, in, that, that, that you're known for now. And so out of love for them, he corrects them. As verse 14 continues, he says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, what is that talking about? Who's this Balaam? Balaam is an Old Testament prophet. We read about him in the book of Numbers, the story that, that uh, 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 Jesus is referencing here in Revelation is found in the Old Testament book of Numbers. And Balaam was a, he's sort of this symbol, he's sort of become this symbol because of what happened to him in Numbers of a false teacher who uses their spiritual platform for financial gain or for financial power. Right? And, so, and so when he, he talks and, and when Jesus addresses them in Revelation 2, talking about the teaching of Balaam, there's not an actual guy, Balaam, in the present day that's, that's, that's leading them astray. No, he's basically just talking about the spirit of Balaam. Just the fact that they've accepted false teachers in their midst. Now, backstory to Balaam's, uh, uh, Balaam's narrative in, in Numbers. Balaam shows up at this time where after Israel had left Egypt. They've been uh, delivered from their bondage, from their slavery in Egypt. And they're wandering through the desert on the way to the promised land. And there's this ruler, this king of sorts named Balak, who was intimidated by them. He heard the stories of what happened in Egypt. He heard the stories of what happened to Pharaoh. And so he's kind of a little scared about these Israelites. He's shaking in his boots just a little bit. And so he hires Balaam, who was a prophet, for a pretty good amount of cash to go to uh, the Israelites and curse them uh, in the name of God. And on Balaam's way, because Balaam's an opportunist, right? He sees an opportunity for, for financial gain, and he's, he's like, sure, like, I'll go do that, right? And on, on his way to the Israelites, the Lord visits Balaam and says, look, don't you dare touch my people. And Balaam's like, oh, my gosh, like, this, this guy's real? He's talking to me, right? And he says, don't you dare touch my people. And, and Balaam, he, he's like, you know, I'm going to go anyways, and so later on, the Lord visits him again, and he says, hey, look, you're not getting my message. So if you didn't get it before, I'm going to tell you right now, you can go ahead and talk to the Israelites, 
but you can only tell them what I tell you to say. You call yourself a prophet, you're supposed to speak on my behalf. So tell them this. And so Balaam looks over the nation of Israel when they're all gathered and he gives them, he speaks to them prophetic words and he gives them a blessing from the Lord. He says, the Lord will look after you. He's gonna bless you. He's gonna protect you. And Balak is frustrated. Like he's ticked off. He's like, that's not what I paid you to do. And so like a fool, he gives Balaam more money. And he tells him to go do that again. And the same thing kind of happens. It happens over and over again a few times. And then finally, Balaam says to Balak, he says, hey, look, if you want to curse them, you got to know I can't curse them if the Lord isn't doing it, if their God's not doing it. But what you can do, he's like, he's like the Lord is real. He, he, he will only bless who he wants to bless. He will only curse who he wants to curse. I can't make the Lord curse him just by saying a curse. But then Balaam says what you can do, what you can do is you can send some of your most attractive people into their camps and invite the people of Israel, invite their leaders into spaces where they will have power and influence in your kingdom. Promise them connections. Promise them opportunities if they'll only do just one thing, just serve in your temples. Serve in your temples of worship. Eat the food sacrificed to idols and, you know, practice a little sexual immorality. He says to Balak, if people get drawn by your, get drawn in by your people and get swept into your religious practices, then you don't need to pay me or anyone else to curse them. Their God will do it himself. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Balaam says to Balak, he says, look, you can't intimidate them or crush them. It seems that whenever someone tries to do that, they just seem to thrive when you do that. By the way, we have seen that happen throughout church history. The very explosion of the early church in the first century from the ancient Near East just boggles the minds of historians. Again, we see that today in Afghanistan, in Africa, in China. Did you know that the places where Christianity is the strongest, where its influence is growing the most, the most exponentially, is not in the West. It's in the Eastern and Southern hemispheres where Christians are being persecuted. That's where Christianity, even today, is growing like crazy. But Balaam says, look, if you tempt them with power, with money, with sex, with influence, with comfort, and suddenly it's going to be more effective. Their faithfulness is going to fade. You see, in Pergamum, there were false ideas on where to find true power, where to find influence and comfort. There were false ideas on where to find these things that we all long for, false ideas that caused them to eventually compromise on their faith. In other words, they were a people that would profess faith with their mouths, but did not actually practice it with their lives. I'll say that again. This was their error in Pergamum. 
They were people who professed faith with their mouths. They said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I do Christian stuff. Look at the Christian things I do, right? Like they profess faith with their mouths, but they don't actually practice it genuinely with their lives. They would say, yeah, I belong to Jesus, but then live a pattern of life that's totally contrary to what the Bible says. I think that should hit in a culture like ours. We're a comfortable people. The American church is a comfortable church. We've been blessed. We've been privileged. We have a lot of freedoms that we've been able to enjoy over the last few centuries. But I think somewhere along the line, these false ideas about power and influence and comfort begins to creep into our spirituality and into our churches. We'll call that corrupting tolerance. In other words, they start to tolerate, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. But then eventually it starts to corrupt the whole thing to where next thing you know, Jesus is writing you a letter to the whole church and saying, hey, you've walked away from your past faithfulness. Corrupting tolerance. It can happen when you either actively disobey Jesus, or it can also happen when you just sort of over time passively drift. You see, some people come to faith later in life. I know there's like a number of you in this room right now, as I see your faces, who have come to faith in Jesus just in the last few years. Some people come to faith later in life, and you're in this place where you're kind of still figuring this thing out, right? You're still learning what it looks like to follow Jesus. And look, I just want you to know, like, there's space for that, all right? There's space for that, and we want to be the kind of church that genuinely provides, just shows the, the grace and, and, the, and the hospitality and just gives you the, the room and to figure that out, to have your questions, your genuine questions answered from the scriptures. There's space for that, and that's why the Bible tells us that when somebody gets saved, They need to be baptized and brought into a local church where they can gather with other Christians every Lord's Day and throughout the week to worship, to learn, and to be formed by the word of God together. And so there's space for that. But on the other hand, when somebody, when we say someone is actively disobeying, what we're saying is that it's not that you don't know the truth, it's that you don't like it. It's not that you don't know the truth about what the Bible says about your money, sex, drunkenness, how you spend your time, how you treat your family, how you love your neighbor. It's not that you don't know the truth about what the Bible speaks into those areas. It's that you just don't always like it. Or... It's not that you don't understand the Bible. 
but that you want, you do understand, and you just want to do something different. On the other hand, passively drifting, that's kind of more of a subtle thing going on. And this happens a lot in a context like ours. When someone is baptized as a kid, but then they grow up and then they don't actively walk with Jesus as an adult. And they begin to say things like, yeah, I'm a Christian because of that thing that I once did, right? Like I, I got that thing that I did. I got baptized. That's why I'm, that's how I know I'm a Christian. Or because, you know, I filled out this card, this connect card, this welcome card uh, at, at this church. And that's how I know that I'm a Christian. I went to this, I went to this class. I signed on the dotted line. They gave me a plaque. That's how I know I'm a Christian. But Jesus says, no, you're going to know a good tree by its good fruit, and you're never going to know a bad tree by its bad fruit. In other words, a real faith will produce real spiritual fruit, and a counterfeit faith might sound and look good on the outside, but inside it's rotten to the core and ultimately produces nothing of spiritual value. And the people at Pergamum, the church at Pergamum, they were saying, hey, look, we found a way to say I'm Christian, but kind of believe whatever we want and do whatever we want to do. And Jesus is like, no, you didn't. I see you. I know you. I see the unveiled version of you. I know what's really going on behind the scenes. And I know that what you're doing, what you're thinking, that that's not going to work, and it's only going to end in tragedy and your judgment. Even though this letter was written about 2,000 years ago, the condition of the human heart is the same today. Just like the church at Pergamum, the version of Christianity that we want is one that doesn't tell us to repent, that doesn't tell us to change, that doesn't tell us to grow. We want, I want, a version that tolerates our rebellion at times, if I'm honest. So we don't exist, we don't ultimately exist the way that we live for the glory of God, but we say that, no, God exists to let me live for the glory of me. But Jesus says, no, there's a truer way. No, there's a better way. There's a more satisfying way. I know you think that your way is what's ultimately satisfying, but no, there's a, there's a more deeper satisfying way that you're, you're missing out on. And so out of love, he calls them out. Now, I want us before we close to consider how we can drift into what we'll call the pergamene error of corrupting tolerance. We're gonna look at four ways that we can drift into the pergamene error of corrupting tolerance. The first way is we begin to identify with culture over Christ. We begin to identify, in other words, our identity, our sense of value, our sense of worth, our sense of being, of purpose, of mission, about why on earth are we here, our identity begins to be more tied to culture than with Christ. You see, the church at Pergamum, 
They considered cultural influences of money, sex, and power more important and more alluring than Christ himself. That's the situation they found themselves in. When you begin to start letting cultural influences begin to tell you what's important, to be tell you what's valuable, to tell you what is good, true, beautiful, then everything starts to go askew. This is why we've seen Christians over the last year belittle and throw shade on their brothers and sisters in Christ who have different ideological convictions on things. Let's look, I'm not saying that we can't have like genuine, honest disagreement on these things. But it's something else entirely to dehumanize a brother or sister in Christ just because you disagree on an issue. This is why you saw a ton of Christians who got too comfortable not attending public worship during lockdown, that they never came back after those lockdowns were lifted. But when Donald Trump tells them to vote in person, they're going to rearrange their whole day and week to make sure that they, they get there and cast their ballot. No, we don't let cultural influences determine how we spend our time, what is most valuable, who wins in the end. No. We let Christ do that. We identify with him over culture. Number two, we can drift into the pergamine air of corrupting tolerance when we start to cherry pick our doctrines. You guys know what cherry picking is? Like it's, it's part, cherry picking is part of this logical fallacy that they call suppressing evidence. And, th- and they get its name, <coughs> it gets its name from the process of harvesting fruit, like cherries, right? And so what happened is that a picker, I don't know if that's what they're called, picker, right? <coughs> a picker would select the ripest <coughs> and healthiest fruit at the harvest. But then the person who receives a basket of that fruit they could wrongly conclude that all of that tree's fruit is just amazing, perfect, ripe, healthy. And what sometimes happens is we can find ourselves in this place where, where it, we're like, man, I only like the doctrines and the teachings in the Bible that affirm what I want to do, how I want to feel. And then we ignore the ones that don't affirm it. Look, we don't get to ignore the parts of the Bible that are uncomfortable. We don't get to ignore the parts of the Bible that are challenging. If you're going to say Jesus is Lord, then you better actually follow him as Lord. You need to let the Holy Spirit speak to you through the word about what it means to be molded into the image of Christ, to grow in spiritual maturity. And so when you say, look, I'm a Christian, but I'm not about these scriptures over here, what you're saying is, these are the things in my life that I don't want to let Jesus have. No, Jesus speaks to us through the whole counsel of scripture, through every doctrine, through the whole narrative, through the whole story, through every book. He makes us new through the scriptures. He's the fulfillment of the Bible. 
itself. And he gave his life for us, for you, for me. I'm not saying that you need to know every doctrine. They need to have every verse known and memorized and studied in order to follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that when you get to a part that challenges you and makes you uncomfortable, you don't get to say, well, then I'm not, I don't like that part, right? And so we drift into the Pergamon era of corrupting tolerance when we start to cherry pick our doctrines. Number three, we also start to drift in that era when we reduce our faith to just the head and or the heart, but no hands, right? You ever heard that terminology, head, heart, and hands? In other words, we want to be whole disciples of Jesus. We understand that Christianity teaches us things. There's things that we need to know. Gospel means good news that is proclaimed. There's information that we do need to receive, but that needs to go from our head into our hearts to where there's fire in our bones, to our affections change, and suddenly we find ourselves saying, man, man, I used to love these things over here, but no, as Jesus is changing me, I find myself wanting to be over here and to, and, and to love these things over here. And then we actually do something with that, hands. We live it out. It outworks itself in our life. When we reduce to our faith to just a head thing, that's when we, we say, like, look, if you, if you know the right things, if I know the right things, then I'm good, right? How I live doesn't matter if I know the right things. And so you read all the books, the right books. You systematize your theology. You fill up your moleskin journal when you're sitting at church. All good things. But if there's no real life transformation, if there's no real life transformation, then the seed of the gospel hasn't actually taken root in the soil of your heart. Or if we reduce our, our faith to just a heart thing only, that's when we say, hey, as long as I feel the right feels, then I'm good. And how I live doesn't matter. And so maybe you're favor- moved by your favorite worship song when it comes up on the radio or on your phone. You cry when you think about how much God loves you. Again, all good things. But if it actually doesn't result in life transformation, is it really real? Is it really genuine? See, we can't reduce our faith to just the head, just the heart, or even just the hands. It's gotta impact the whole thing. Jesus in his own way said this when he said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are whole creatures, and we follow him with our whole being. Number four, we fall into the Pergamene error when we don't see God as all satisfying. Man, we got to see God as all satisfying. Somewhere along the line, we were told that to pick up our own crosses, to die to ourselves, and to follow Jesus, that in order to do that, we shouldn't desire anything in return, right? And there's a sense into which, like, I get why people say that, and that there's a sense into which, like, yeah, I, I can see how that's partly true. 
But what if the reward we get is not a creaturely reward, but just a love relationship with the creator himself? What if to pick up your own cross, to die to yourself, and to follow Jesus, you do get your desires met in return? Because your desires are met in God. They're met in God. They're satisfied in him. We don't follow Jesus to get gifts. Yeah, that's true. We don't follow him to get gifts. We don't follow him also to get to heaven. We follow Jesus to get God. We get gifts. We get heaven thrown in. There's this famous passage in C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. You may have heard it or read it at some point. But Lewis says... The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We're told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, then it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. This is a money quote. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. (coughs) We're far too easily pleased. What he's saying is, our desire for pleasures are so trite that we find them satisfying by things like drink and sex and ambition. But it's like, no, there's a deeper desire if you look for it. If you dig down, there's a deeper desire in your being that can only be satisfied by God alone. So Jesus, when he's addressing the, Pergamum, the church at Pergamum's, at Pergamum, he, he encourages them with a future hope. Number three, Pergamum's future hope. We'll skip down to verse 17, where Jesus says, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, in other words, to the one who does return to faithfulness. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What does he mean here? If you know your Old Testament, you know that manna is this miraculous bread that God gave to his people through the prophet Moses. This miraculous bread when they were wandering through the desert and were just so hungry, so famished, having eaten in days, and God provides this miraculous bread. Manna 
reminds us that God will provide what you truly long for. And what you really need and long for but can't see, God will provide. Don't just reach for what you can see, Jesus says. Don't just reach for what you can see. Jesus is unveiling what's really going on, and he says, no, look, there's, there's this hidden manna that is available to you that satisfies the deepest parts of your soul. Remember the history of this church. Remember the history of the church at Pergamum. They suffered for their faithfulness. They suffered for it. And they found that there are shortcuts and compromises to get comfort, safety, and satisfaction. But Jesus lovingly reminds us that those shortcuts, they don't last. In Christ, there is a hidden manna. Our future is as bright as the glory of Jesus in heaven. And so Jesus is pleading with them in this text. Jesus is pleading with us through this text. Don't seek power, comfort, safety, and pleasures here and compromise the power, riches, and comfort that you'll have for all eternity in Christ. Jesus isn't offering you a diminished life, but the real good life. Sometimes we start to think, you know, if I follow Jesus, then I'm just going to have like a diminished life, a less happy life. But no, the Bible tells us that if you follow Jesus, what you end up getting is the real good life. The real good life that you keep chasing through all these other things but can never seem to get there. That's what Jesus comes to give. And look, this is why we're doing this series in Revelation. Because we want, as a church, to be wholehearted disciples. We want to create endurable, wholehearted faith. People who will still sing when they suffer, who will still gather and serve one another when it's not convenient, who will still love God when they lose, who will still see the beauty of Christ over the allure of comfort, power, and pleasure, knowing those things will not satisfy in the end, but that Jesus always does. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.